Bias and discrimination are everywhere. It's something that we as a society are trying to improve, but there are layers of nuance in terms of social and cultural context, personal perceptions, and privilege which are complicating matters. This episode of Steam Powered is a segue, where I take the opportunity to share more fascinating stories relating directly or indirectly to women in Steam. My guest today is Raksha Kumar, an award-winning journalist with a focus on forest, land, and human rights issues. She's also a documentary filmmaker, and has written for publications including The New York Times, BBC, and The Guardian. Join us as we speak about Raksha's investigative work into the layered and complex issues around caste and sexism in India's tech industry. I'm Michelle Ong, and this is Steam Powered. Good afternoon, Raksha. Thank you so much for joining me today on Steam Powered. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you about your writing and your recent piece for Rest of World. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So also, I want to congratulate you on recently being awarded in the India UK Achiever Awards in January. That's that's amazing、Thank、that you were you. able to be recognised for all the good work that you're doing. Thank you so much. I mean, like I said, it's just it's getting tougher to to be a journalist. Partially、yeah. because nobody knows what a journalist is anymore, <laughs> <laughs> and then partially because, yeah, I mean, everything we'd learned is、um, going out the window. So, yeah, so it's good to know that somebody's recognizing the work. Yeah, absolutely. And there's always going to be places for people who are actually doing this kind of journalism as well. So it's great that you're actually being recognized for doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So recently, you wrote a piece on Rest of World. Called the enduring sexism of India's tech industry, which was a really powerful read, and we'll get to that shortly. But I'd like to know a little bit more about your background as a journalist, and you know, with your focus on human rights. So, what motivated you to direct your journalistic attentions to human rights? Um, so I started out as a journalist.、Um, you know, I mean, when I started out as a journalist, I was an editor in one of the news channels. So I was. The last person between whatever was happening in the newsroom and whatever was being watched by the viewers,、uh, we were close to twenty million. You know, we had close to twenty million、uh, Indian viewers back then, and so at that point, I had the entire palette in front of me. The whole platter was served, and I could pick and choose whatever I wanted to do. So when I decided to report and go out into the field and actually see what what interests me, it turns out that. People interest me more than anything else. So, I was talking to communities, getting to know them better, trying to understand、uh, their issues. That really kind of kept me, kept me going in a way. So that was that was the main reason why I thought a very broad umbrella of human rights would make sense. All the communities kind of fit into it. Each person matters.、Uh, each person has rights, and each person there's a social contract.、Uh, you know. That kind of compels us to to you know look at another human being like you look at yourself, and that's that's great. So,、uh, so that's that's how it started. So I started doing all kinds of stories in the beginning when I started reporting, but then it just kind of got streamlined to issues related to land rights, who should own land, who should own resources, what about forests and. Rivers and so it was at the intersection of the environment, 
state ownership, collective ownership, like uh, indigenous community. So all of these came together. So how do you like put all these issues under what broad umbrella do you kind of club all of these issues? And so in that sense, you know, it became it became broader and it became human rights. Yeah. And it, yeah, it, it's so true because, you know, people are fascinating, but there's so many factors in the way that, you know, interact in society and the environment and through, throughout history. So, you know, it, it's such a fascinating space to be in and with such rich complexity that, you know, you, you're never going to be wanting for finding a fascinating topic to delve into. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's probably another, like, you know, the reason. Where do you go looking for stories? Well, people all around you. Also, I live now officially in the world's most populous country. So our, it's much easier to find people's <laughs> stories in India, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So what was the impetus for writing the piece for Rest of World about sexism in India's tech industry? Um, I did a piece for Rest of World about eight eight odd uh, months before this piece was published, and that looked at caste in India's tech industry. So the trigger for that was this court case that happened in the US where a particular individual whose name has been withheld in media records, mm-hmm. uh, he alleged that his uh, you know superiors in his company were discriminating against him because of the caste that he was born into. So, you know, India has India has practiced a caste system for centuries now and people who fall in the bottom half of the ladder have been discriminated discriminated against for a long time now by the oppressor caste. But then unfortunately it's it's gotten lost in uh, the monotheistic cultures of the West. So you don't really look at caste as an oppressive system because it's also a really difficult system to understand. It seeps into the society. It seeps into various aspects of human existence and it doesn't it, it doesn't stare in your face, let's say, like res- racism does. But it is still extremely oppressive and it has, you know, facets which are deplorable. And so this individual who in fact, graduated from one of the, you know, uh, most reputed engineering colleges in, in India, uh, alleged that his seniors at work were discriminating against him because of the caste that he was born into. And so this court case triggered general awareness around caste. And there was also a book uh, written on caste. And so suddenly, everybody in the US began talking about caste and how the tech industry in the Silicon Valley you know, is discriminatory and casteist. Uh, there is a very interesting non-profit slash think tank, Equality Labs, that works around caste, uh, you know, and they kind of, you know, began to spread awareness about how this functions, why this should matter, and how this is as discriminatory as other discriminatory practices when it comes to gender or race or, you know, other, other very core uh, identity issues. So, so it started from there, and then it was it was reported in India. The case was reported in India. Uh, it had a very clear India angle, but nobody in India was talking about the caste practices within Indian tech industry. So, tech industry in India is massive. 
the contribution to i don't have the figures right off the top of my head but basically the tech industry's contribution to india's gdp is massive it also employs uh, a, a massive chunk of the formally educated class in india and so despite that in india you would you would just talk about caste as being a us problem well this is a this is a problem in the silicon valley it's not really a problem in india so when i spoke to rest of world i said i want to investigate how caste plays itself out within the indian tech industry because having seen uh, caste discrimination in in the indian society i refused to believe that indian tech is you know uh, caste neutral or that there won't be any discriminatory practices in the indian tech industry and also indian tech industry began as a a hub of uh, international companies in specific places let's say in bangalore in pune in you know specific cities but then over a period of time it's kind of expanded itself you'll see technology parks and tech hubs in many indian cities so it does mean that you know caste practices have kind of been incorporated into a lot of these tech parks and 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 companies so that was the first investigation and while we were doing that it just i couldn't keep myself away from looking at gender it just happened to be such a huge part of you know the reporting that i did for the caste story so every every time i would ask people okay so can we talk about discriminatory practices in your company they the first thing they'd come up with was gender uh so in a in a way you know i felt kind of foolish to not be looking at gender and so it took a it took a few more months to kind of put together some pre reporting and then the editors at rest of world are amazing because they kind of they get it and especially when we are talking about when we are talking about the people behind the tech industry i think it's so all of these are labor issues so done three long uh long form pieces for rest of world and all of them are about people who you know power tech in a way right like the people behind uh the, the industry and so one of them was about gender discrimination and um and then and then as and when i decided to uh speak to more and more women i realized that this problem is not uh you know i i thought it's going to be well sure like everybody talks about gender discrimination everywhere so then you know what is it about the tech industry and why are we singling this out and why is it that i need to spend 8 months of my life <laughs> trying to understand how gender discrimination works in tech when it works in every other industry more or less similarly but then i when i was writing the piece i realized very very different and and you know the editors at uh, at rest of world kind of pushed me to then go into individual stories because they were illustrative of how the layers of discrimination you know play out uh and so it is it 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 just it goes from something extremely banal to very very profound and and the entire spectrum is discriminatory so in a way now you step back and say oh my god how is it that we didn't see this before yeah and you know it it's such a fascinating space to be looking in and obviously if you're living it horrifying but <laughs> yeah it, it, absolutely it's, it's so interesting that it came from that cast piece because i read that as well and it's just one of those things where when it's so 
integrated and integral to your culture's history. Yeah. You almost, it's not that you get blind to it, but you take it for granted that that is a part of your way of life, whether or not it should be. And then it's the people who are affected by it who are the ones who have to speak up and say, well, actually, you know, problem. And that becomes a, that's hard because when it's such a big part of the background, telling people that they have to change these attitudes and change these behaviors is a monumental task. It takes generations of work to progress past that. And we're seeing all of that change in our workplaces, which are meant to be tiny ecosystems representative of our broader culture. Absolutely. Yeah. And specifically tech, I guess, because, you know, it tech came with the promise of creating a flatter world. It came with the promise of being non-discriminatory. Anybody who understood how a keypad worked or who understood how this particular machine worked would be the same. So in that space, to replicate the discrimination that has been going on for generations, it was amazing to, to, to see that play out. But also to your point about the the onus of of pointing out discrimination, um, you know, falls on the oppressed castes, which is obviously unfair. And most of the oppressor castes are caste blind. I mean, a lot of us did not realize, like it is right in front of you, but you do not really realize the the implications uh, of it on on people who don't belong to your own community uh, or who were born into a different community. So in a way, the people who have the privilege to recognize caste discrimination are caste blind. And then people who are facing, uh, are getting, are facing the brunt of it, you know, uh, really do not have the power or the privilege to speak up all the time. So the system perpetuates and it's, uh, you know, it goes on for generations. And so it's in the, in, the, in the IT world, when I stepped into the IT world and started talking about caste, everybody said, but I'm, I'm not going to put my name to it. I can't be identified in the piece. And initially it felt like, but you're an engineer, like you graduated from one of the best institutions in the country you know, you are earning more money than I would earn in six months. Like all of this put together, but still the person really does not want to identify his or her, you know, caste origins. Just tells you so much about how oppressive and discriminatory this practice is. Yeah. And it's the same thing as with uh, the gender discrimination in the later piece as well. There were also a lot of people who wanted to share their story but wanted to do it anonymously because they feared repercussions and yeah and that that, that's very telling it it really does say quite a lot about the system that's currently in place and the problems and how pervasive it is yeah that is true and also a lot of the women chose not to put their names to it for various like each person had a different reason and so when you look at how pervasive gender discrimination is, so one person did not want to put her name to it because she felt it would, you know, her future employers would feel like she is playing, quote unquote, the woman card. Um, one person did not want to put her name to it because she felt that she didn't want to be recognized as, quote unquote, a feminist. Um, because the word is really loaded in different contexts, you know. It doesn't mean the same thing in 
different spaces. Uh, there was another person who said, I did not face gender discrimination at all. And then went on to talk to me for two hours about how, you know, she was discriminated against in her first job and her second job and her third job. And then, you know, ended up saying, but hold on, but I still don't feel discriminated against because the idea of discrimination is so different from individual to individual. So um, she kept saying, but I have a voice, I have power, I can you know, stand up in front of 100 people and talk about my experiences and, you know, be articulate about who I am and how, how I reached where I reached. So basically, I was not discriminated against. So this is, it was such a can of worms. Like, there's <laughs> so many things to unpack in in all these conversations, which is why I guess it took us... That long. <laughs> I would say six months. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I, I I can relate to hearing those kinds of things because it's one of those things when it comes with um, the idea of prejudice and discrimination because, yeah, as you said, there are layers and tiers of this and at the same time it's the whole, well, I have this privilege, I have no right to be saying that I have been discriminated against because of this small amount of privilege that I have. Yeah. And it's like that's... You can be privileged and be discriminated against. Like these two are not mutually exclusive, and the levels and the severity are not mutually exclusive. Like all of these things can happen at the same time, and exactly. your experience is still a valid experience. Yeah, <laughs> it took a lot of time for us to reach that. Like we kept <laughs> we we kept talking about it for so long, and then eventually she said. Yeah, maybe I'd say partial discrimination. <laughs> I'm not really sure. And so the thing is, nobody can... It's it's really her lived experience. And it's the tag that she wants to put on, on her life, whether it is discrimination or not. But, the, but it also goes to, to show how much we are brainwashed into thinking that we are, we are privileged and therefore not necessarily discriminated against. But this also goes to show that we are so aware of our uh, privileges, for instance, that I had to, in both the caste story and the gender story, I had to look at the intersections. So in the caste story, there is an entire section of women from oppressed castes and the kind of uh, casteist uh, discrimination they face which is significantly different from the men uh, and, the, and the way um, they experience caste. And similarly, in the gender story, there is an entire section where I had to speak to women from oppressed castes and talk about how gender discrimination plays out if you are from a caste that is not privileged. And so the, these interconnected kind of intersections of these power plays was also something I think one has to be really aware of. So the, uh, the, the woman who spoke to me, you know, from one of the oppressed castes in the gender story said, look, this is how I am discriminated against. And I identify myself as being a Dalit, uh, which is, you know, they fall in the lowest sorry, rung of the ladder. So basically the most uh, oppressed castes in the caste system that India practices. 
and so she said i'm a dalit and i identify myself as a dalit woman and so the way i experience gender is so different from the way you know a privileged caste uh, woman would experience gender so all of these overlapping layers became really important to be conscious of yes it it's just such a richly complex issue just because each layer of discrimination each layer of oppression adds a different sort of nuance to that experience and yeah. how people will treat other people and yeah it it becomes a very difficult issue when you start talking about equity and access and trying to give people opportunities and resources in an equal way because you end up having to deal with these layers of nuance on top of that which adds political and social restrictions and limitations to the way that you can approach these problems absolutely yeah yeah there's there's really i mean yeah nobody can dispute that that is it's extremely complex and also i think so there are two things you know as a journalist i take away from this experience uh i knew that nobody had worked on looking at caste in the indian tech sector before that was pretty clear very few uh, academics had even i mean literally the only ac- the academics have quoted in the story are the only ones who worked on it so it's there was there's no sample that i had to create i had to speak to every single person who had worked on it uh to 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 get figures so caste story i was very aware nobody had touched before i was i was sure it was unexplored territory and you know i was getting into it trying to uh wade through and and draw my own map gender i was very sure people had worked on immensely before so in my head i'm thinking why am i replicating someone's work <laughs> why do i really want to spend this kind of time and effort working on a story that has been written before but then the learning for me was that every time a person writes it you come up with a different layer so this goes to your point of uh you know how you know you were saying that all these layers are so complex and intricate and you know there are these layers of politics and socioeconomics and so many things that need to be unearthed so that is where i thought hold on there is still so much more to be explored and gender genuinely i mean we we got figures we have you know companies are doing surveys and then uh, there are uh, you know the diversity and inclusion uh, what are these the, 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 the i don't want to call them clubs what are they they are like yeah basically the think tanks and branches yeah research committees yeah. all sorts of things like there's so many different types of organizations looking into this and i mean definitely two things that are going to come up as part of this conversation are going to be you know things like the glass ceiling obvious yeah. you know, women in the workforce you're always going to talk about that and when you're talking yes. about women in stem and in tech you're going to talk about the leaky pipeline which yes. for people who aren't aware of that uh it's the reduction or the lack of participation you know talk about that word later of women or discriminated or um underrepresented groups rather not discriminated um in these technical fields and how the numbers will dwindle as you progress higher in your career progression. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if we're just looking at I oh, rewind, go back to the word participation. Participation makes it sound like it's a thing that we actively do, 
But sometimes, yeah. like, there's a lot of layers to that because it's about how many people go in and how many people leave because they either choose not to participate or they are unable to for whatever reason. Like, there's a lot of layers yeah. to that. But in the article, I'm going to mention some interesting statistics that you mentioned so that we can kind of work on that. So you wrote that in India, about 36% of roles in tech are held by women, 13 for management positions, and 7 in exec. For reference, it's about 29% of women in tech in Australia, which is slightly higher than the global average. Mm -hmm. And I don't have the exact numbers for management, but at the very least, it's in the double digits for exec roles. And those numbers are fascinating to me. I mean, the fact that the participation rate in India starts at 36 and drops to 7 Mm-hmm. And the global kind of average sits within that. That is a fascinating kind of view just to begin with. So if we wind that back a little bit, with 36% of women in the tech workforce, you know, we were talking about how tech is meant to be like the great equalizer, especially in yeah. terms of caste and, you know, whatever intersectionality you're at. So is that what's drawing women to the tech field in such large numbers? So over the decade, so India is a new, newish democracy, only 75 years old. So in the last 70 odd years, it's only in the last 25 odd years that, you know, the country's economy opened up. And that coincided with the development of the information technology sector in the country. So if you, if you, if you combine the two of them and see what an open economy did to the country is that it not just brought in a lot of foreign money, it introduced the idea of consumption, it, you know, introduced the idea of of economic upward mobility amongst various sections of the society. So when people started earning more and more, or at least certain sections started earning more and more, they, they kind of pivoted from, uh, I'll only get my son educated to, well, I'll have fewer children and I'll get all my children educated. So that meant that more and more women, you know, have been educated in the last few years, in the last few decades, sorry, than, you know, women of previous, previous generations. generations were. So when you have, you know, at the beginner level, so you have everybody going into engineering schools, for instance, men, women alike. And then when they graduate at the beginner level, uh, the person, people who are looking to recruit, they don't really discriminate between genders because a 21-year-old man and a 21-year-old woman are more or less the same, especially because in India, as more and more women are educated and uh, more and more women going into higher education, uh, it means that women are getting married late. Uh, I mean, there's figures to prove all of this, except I don't have them at the top of my mind. And then they're also um, having fewer children and then having children much later in their lives, mm. which means the sweet spot for a recruit uh, a recruiter is between 21 and 25 or 26. And those five years, gender matters less in terms of recruitment, um, especially if you graduate from one of the premier institutions, you know, uh, and, and all of these are in generalities. I'm sure, uh, you know, there are women who'd, who'd point out and say, but I was in a premier institution and I was 22 and then this boy got, you know, <laughs> filled my spot, <laughs> which, is, yeah. which is a completely fair experience. But I'm saying in, in general, 
uh, for somebody who's recruiting, it is it the person doesn't need to discriminate between 21 and 26 because it's only much later that all of what you mentioned, the leaky pipeline, the uh, glass ceiling and everything will hit only much later. So, so the 36% that you're talking about are women who comprise of this bottom tier of the pyramid of the Indian IT, which is why the stark difference between 36 and 7. Yeah. But those women who actually go up the ladder are so few and far in between, you know. In fact, one of the people, I think, I think the woman was um, quoted in the piece when, uh, you know, this uh, professor at uh, IIM, Indian Institute of Management, Bangalore, said it doesn't matter at that stage when you're starting out like you know i'm i'm going to pay the least amount of salary to the most competitive uh candidate who's applied and that could be a man or a woman and most likely it's a woman because there's also this subconscious awareness that you have time till you turn 26 or 27 to do whatever you want to do uh (laughs) in life there is a like a it's somewhere there in your mind to say I don't need to now worry about feeding a family or raising kids or whatever Uh, and so and so most likely women have their clocks ticking and Mm -hmm. so they you know they they'd want to prove themselves earlier on in their careers yes before life takes over absolutely and then yeah uh, another statistic was that, you know, women leave tech around five-ish years, which is around that time, because it's that time where they're looking at career progression, promotions, or, you know, looking to see where they want to go next in what they want to do in life. Even if they don't want to quit tech, for instance, uh, when you get married to somebody who's, let's say, moving countries, moving cities, the priority really of where you will stay still depends on who you're married to. Uh, for most women I mean clearly there are exceptions so a lot of women like in that five six year period that you're talking about end up doing whatever they want to and at at the end of it if they do get married to somebody who let's say moves to the US or Singapore or wherever else or even like another city within the country they are giving up their jobs and moving yeah and that becomes like it it's another issue that comes up a lot particularly with academics but more so with people with uh, double career uh, family yes. units. Because, yeah, one person's going to have to move or relocate and the other person has to make that choice of either trying to find a new job in the new place or sidelining their career for a little bit. And, yeah, you, you end up doing that, make, making that choice, and more often than not, it's going to be the woman who makes the choice to sideline. And, yeah, yeah. It, it's... It's a fascinating problem. So these, the terms that you refer to of, you know, this, this is, it's, I think it's an awful term to call it a leaky pipeline. But yeah, it honestly, is. <laughs> that's, that's the term a lot of the HR representatives use. And yes. whether it's that or the glass ceiling or, you know, post-pregnancy um, discrimination. So this is not post-childbirth, mind you. It's just post-pregnancy. The minute they know that you are going to give birth in a few months, like a lot of the discrimination begins. All of this, to me, felt like it's not a tech problem. It's not a tech industry problem. 
But then when you like go closer to the tech industry and see how it fo- it plays out there, you f- you see the you see how unique it can become within science and technology. And and that to me was again like fascinating. I come from I come from a complete like my background is in humanities. I have no idea. I guess that's another reason I I work on people behind tech and I have no idea how tech functions. Like I you know, I I I don't take to newer technologies easily when it's <laughs> hardware or software and it's it's not something that comes easily to me so people being discriminated against this way it was a great discovery and throughout we had like my editors and I had this conversation about okay why is this a tech problem why is this a tech industry problem like why are we saying that glass ceiling exists in the tech industry where it whereas it exists everywhere else and what is unique about glass ceiling in the tech industry, you know, and, and how is it that we can highlight that? Yeah, and, and that's what's fascinating because a lot of these problems, yes, it is, it doesn't discriminate in field. Like all of these sorts of issues are life issues, not specifically career issues. And yeah, it's, yeah. it's funny, I actually saw a paper that had the subject, the impact of childbearing age on employment possibilities or employment potential mm-hmm. and I just read that subject and went ow that hurts yeah <laughs> <laughs> because you know and this was across the board like in general so clearly mm-hmm. it's not going to be you know tech specific but at the same yeah. time it also depends on the industry and in some cases how exploitative or how um high pressured the environment is because mm-hmm. I think as mentioned in some of your some of the people you spoke to if there were cases where they wouldn't be put on projects where they were required to work overtime and you know yeah. later hours and stuff like that. And you know that's also a separate problem. If you're required to keep working overtime, that's a that's a system and a company issue. But in a lot of tech, they used to and sometimes still do encourage that. You know, you need to go above and beyond. You need to be able to put in the extra hours. Sometimes you need to punch extra hard and put in overtime. And it's that kind of thing where they expect that kind of performance, but they know that, you know, there's some people who are not going to be doing able to do that because they've got family obligations or other things. You know, rest of world editors and I used to have this conversation a lot about what makes this uniquely a tech problem. And what you're saying is what makes it uniquely a tech problem. Now, the thing with technology industries is that they, most of them uh, work across time zones, the big ones at least. Uh, even those that are smaller, you know, are servicing the bigger clients and end up working across time zones. And especially the startups, which do not, most startups do not have a work-life balance, balance. you know, idea of a work-life balance. And so tech is, is, is uniquely, the industry is uniquely placed to exploit <laughs> uh, yeah well yes i would also make all the demands that you just listed so the demands yeah. of you know work for longer hours work later you know like no work-life balance like all of that is very um prevalent within the tech industry for all the reasons that i just mentioned and so this was one of the one of the things that came up when we were discussing it so i spoke to a lot of the larger companies in india and they were all multinational companies working across time zones so even those who were trying to be uh, compassionate with their employees time 
we're still working across three time zones. So even if you are, let's say, doing India, Singapore, Hong Kong, you're still doing four and a half hours. You know, if you're not, let's assume you're not doing uh, East, US East Coast or US West Coast in India, which are 12 hours apart. Even if you're still doing India and Hong Kong, you're doing like anywhere between three, four, five hours. So it's it's still longer hours. It's There's still no work-life balance. There's no social life. And you're still, you know, the the, the the primary responsibility of the household is still on the woman despite longer work hours so yeah all of these are uniquely tech <laughs> yeah tech and startup or entrepreneurship anything where yeah you know they like to encourage the idea of hustle and right <laughs> yeah it, it yeah. just keeps spreading that way and that's the kind of behavior and the kind of culture that's developed whether or not that's the way it should be yeah 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 and so if you think about it these are industries that were mm, i'm thinking twice about using the word created but maybe maybe that is the word like they were created by men you know who could hustle and you know even if even if there were a few women you know who uh, were there when when the industry was at its nascent stages the number of women who were there was still very very few and so it was a man's world for a very long period of time. And now women who enter the man's world, at least for uh, the initial years, have got to just become, you know, they've got to it's adapt shaped to, by the, that. Yeah. to the, to the yeah, ways of that world. Yeah. So just, I know somebody's going to mention this. Um, so <laughs> it's about the visible women. <laughs> so yeah. there weren't as many visible women. So a lot of the other decisions were not necessarily driven by the women in these fields, however, whatever capacity they had in there. And so you, you, yeah, you end up having cultures and corporations and communities developed around the dominant demographics more easily said, because it's, you know, that's just going to be how it works. And yeah. yeah. So when you are in this environment and add to the fact that, you know, academically and, you know, everyone's had, all these papers written on it women also have to seem to prove themselves more than men in all of these ways as well so they end up working harder sometimes working longer hours even though you know they are technically have the same job because they need to be able to show that they're just as good as the others and yeah, yeah it it adds to so many of the different factors that you know lead to burnout and people leaving and or the the leaky pipeline effectively yeah 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 i mean there are testimonies in the story where women have said exactly that like we have to work twice as hard to prove ourselves we've got to whether it's in whether it is in the amount of work or the quality of work or the quantity of work i mean they just have to work so much harder but the other thing about invisibility that you said um is also something we this started out being uh, we conceptualized it as a much shorter piece than it eventually turned out to be <laughs> so there were again a lot of the work that did not feature in this uh, not because it's not important but simply because it's constraints and so one of the things was about invisibility so for a lot of these women in the tech industry in India to be able to function uh, across time zones and you know manage their lives and whatever else 
they really need an army of women supporting them now these women can be their mothers their mothers-in-law their whatever like other female members of the family or it could be domestic help who are most likely women uh, and all this 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 kind of a support structure this ecosystem created by other women so these women can be you know a quote-unquote productive part of their company uh, is also a very uniquely Indian phenomenon. Uh, sorry, I don't not not Indian, but like Indian um, upwardly mobile uh, tech industry phenomenon. They all end up being paid a lot more. Like they fall into the top one percent uh, of uh, earners in India, and so therefore they can afford to hire help. And the hired help also happens to be women who are hustling you know, their homes and other homes. and Yeah, it just ripples downwards all the way. <laughs> yeah. But, but within, but within uh, the female gender, and that is what is, uh, you know, I mean, that, that, that is what makes us, like, highlight the discrimination, right? Like, it doesn't, you do have uh, men in the family taking up responsibilities more and more, but then it, the bulk of it falls uh, on women still yes and you know culturally as well very like interestingly even though you know there are more family units where the men and the women take equal share in the household things and we're getting organizations and companies and employers who are you know more supportive of the flexibility of both members of the adult part of the household having these responsibilities and you know parental leave going to both genders not just the mother you know it it's all these sorts of things that need to be encouraged to provide support for the equity because just yeah. saying you know we need to support the women it's it's great we need to do that but you also need to support the men to support the women in order to create yes. that create that environment where it still feels more balanced and it's not just saying they, the women need a leg up it's like no you need to help the men to help the mm-hmm. women be a family unit and yeah, yeah, it, or even just a functioning household unit. So yeah, yeah lots of problems. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, some people, uh, some people, even in the in the story, come out and say that they say we've got to now actually help the men realize you know, what the women feel and how women feel because it's not that they don't want to be empathetic; it's just that they don't know how to be. Uh, so this is not a takeaway from the fact that there's gender discrimination, but some of it is actually true. Like when you speak to the men in the industry, they say, uh, but so they've never really experienced being a woman, obviously. So they, their experience is from the outside and they really don't know how to behave as long as, you know, I mean, if there's somebody who's actually teaching them, uh, while I agree that the responsibility shouldn't solely fall, fall on women, it really needs to be communicated to them. And <laughs> Absolutely. And it's such an important thing that we forget. And I guess there is also that historical expectation that women just do things quietly in the background. Yes. <laughs> and things just happen, like yeah. magic happens. And it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, but you're so capable. You do that. Yeah. Do you know how much work it took to be so effortless? Yeah. <laughs> So it, it's, yeah, it's about communicating that to both sides so they understand this is actually how much work is required to do all of these things. And 
you know, this is the kind of support that both sides need. And this is the kind of communication that both sides need so that we understand where the shortfall is, not just within themselves, but within the system. And, you know, what do the men need to have in order to make this entire system improve for both sides? And again, it's not about the sides, it's about bringing everyone up together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the system, when we say the system, again, if we're talking policy level, again, it's male dominated. So a lot of the policies, um, you know, while they're headed in the right direction, actually end up becoming gender discriminatory unintentionally. So a woman who's quoted in the piece said there was a policy in the office where women needed to um, essentially like, head home before eight or they needed to have like a chauffeur drive them home post whatever dark or eight or whatever um, essentially in the evening so that meant that most women automatically chose earlier shifts in the day they automatically began working you know um, in, in uh, like whatever during the day and this the policy was right in the sense that the pol the the rationale behind the policy was women's safety but the way they brought it about ended up being discriminatory you know ended up telling the woman well mm, I'm not really sure you can work after eight o'clock in the evening so do you want to head home do you want to chauffeur do you want like you know and all of this is fair I mean it's fair in in a in a in an environment where women are facing more gender-based violence um and and the responsibility is on the company to ensure that women are safe. Uh, but it's a tricky policy. Mm. It is. It, it is tricky because it, it's loaded kind of, like, as you said, they either won't be given the responsibilities that require them to use these services, which cost the company money, or, you know, yeah. they have to make choices to avoid that so that they don't get discriminated against. It's It's that very fine balance of... Yeah. yeah, how how we can support, but also not accidentally sideline again. Yeah, and and it and all of these are tricky policies. Like you mentioned, parental leave in India, there is six months maternity leave that a woman is entitled to. Now the problem is, so some of the women I spoke to said, why not make it three months maternity leave and three months paternity leave, and that would just automatically. Uh, balance out the responsibility fam- familial responsibility I don't know if that uh, is accepted throughout because we are not making laws for a specific section of the society the laws are for everyone so how acceptable these laws are trickling down through socioeconomic hierarchies is something a lawmaker needs to keep in mind and that's just again it gets very tricky yeah because there's also a lot of cultural stuff around that as well because in some countries that works and you Mm. hear about people saying oh but this country does this policy and it works great for them look at there's been no problems if they seem pretty you know well adjusted as a society but you can't just transplant certain policies into a different country and expect them to work in the same way because it's about the people so, you know, yeah. in some countries, yes, the parental leave that's divided between both both parents works great because culturally they're totally okay with that. But in yeah. an environment where there's still stigma or there's still expectations in terms of what gender roles or marriage roles are, 
or you know any kind of partnership roles that can be problematic because it's saying oh but yeah. now you're penalizing me and it, it's 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 a difficult one to navigate because you need to understand the cultural balance and how to be able to provide the support without and again comes back to legal we we don't want to upset everyone because we want to stay in office right so yeah. it, it's it comes down to trying to figure out a way to provide the support without upsetting all your constituents and also creating cultural change so that your constituents are starting to think about things a bit differently as well that's exactly what it is it's really tough so i i don't envy the lawmakers <laughs> <laughs> who have to navigate through all of this but it it's good to be aware of all these layers before you put pen on paper and say this is the law because a lot of the laws really you know come from conventional thinking of how gender roles are specified and that's it won't cut it going forward no yeah people need to be a lot more aware of where their blindness is because yeah. we all we all have internalized bias and it's just yeah. trying to increase the awareness and communication around all of these factors so that we can at least first identify where our biases are and mm-hmm. then kind of work from that to try and move forward in a, in an interesting way it goes back to educate science and technology education so i come from a humanities background and just this self awareness to identify biases to look at power structures to understand discriminatory practices you know a lot of my formal education actually did help me with that and science and technology education in india i mean it's changing now but but uh, you know has traditionally been very skill based or focused on on the technicalities of uh, their chosen subject and and you're not really like talking about this larger idea of existing as human beings within the society you're talking about you know getting coding done or whatever else it is that you know this this massive field of science and technology offers so this combination of developing human skills you know or so, or social skills or just awareness of social structures power structures all of that can actually go into go into education and and it would hold a lot of us in good stead in the longer run absolutely like you've hit on one of my hills like yes absolutely <laughs> this 100% this all the way this because technology and science are tools to help serve the people serve humanity so you need to think about humanity a little bit more when you are thinking about all of these technical and scientific and you know all of these spaces because it's not about just creating the next big thing and yeah understanding you know how the world works from a science basis and being able to productize it because it's yeah. about the impact how's that going to affect the people the product is released to how's it going to impact society how does it interact with society and humanity and what mm-hmm. does it mean for the people when these things happen and you know that's from a larger scope but again you're going to be working with people to make these products you're going to be working with people to figure out what these technologies do you need to understand yeah. people so you know being able to have more courses which incorporate the humanities either in terms of ethics and philosophy and understanding a little bit of sociology or you know anthropology 
it doesn't have to be in great detail, but at least get people thinking about it and understanding yeah. you're going to be working with people. You're not just working with the tech. Yeah. That, that yeah. to me is like, we need to make this happen. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I completely agree. And yeah, to, to think about it, uh, to question existing structures, I think the questioning bit is so intrinsically science, except within the technical fields, the questioning is lost, which is a which is an amazing paradox. Like I cannot wrap my head around that. You know, when you are when you are studying the, the, all the subjects that fall within the broader categories of science and technology, the questioning is somewhere in the back burner if it exists at all. And but then you know the very idea of science is to be able to question and question everything and not take anything lying down. So then where is how do you resolve this this paradox like why can't people who are trained in science and tech question more and question all the ones that you know all the subjects that you spoke about like whether it is sociology anthropology like just i mean gender is is something which is pretty basic so i think if this is tackled at the at the level of education then the burden doesn't fall on the women to kind of make men aware of you know the the power structures exactly. for instance yeah absolutely and you know th- this isn't even just talking about tertiary education and colleges and universities it's bringing it even further back into uh, earlier primary. education and primary secondary because you want them to question, you want them to ask about the world and you want them to ask about the potential and the possibilities and all of that encompasses the people around you, even if you yeah. are talking about the science. So yeah, yeah, bringing the philosophy of science back into the actual study of science, it's, yeah, all of those things that need to happen. But yeah, <laughs> slow progress. <laughs> yeah, yeah, extremely... Well, I mean, if you're living through it, it seems like it's extremely slow progress. But if you look at it from, you know, a a perspective, I mean, we've actually progressed quite a bit. Like if you if you look back (laughs) and say, wow, how did we do that? But yeah, it's living through it. um, It feels like, gosh, when are we ever going to get there? I know. And, you know, again, like summing all of this up. It has felt really grim talking this last hour about all of these topics. And, you know, it, it isn't a nightmare. Like there, there are problems, but there are problems in every kind of industry. And it's just yeah. being aware of that and knowing that things are actually changing. You know, as you said before, we've got think tanks, we've got associations, we've got interest groups, all focused on all of these kinds of factors that uh, when are we impacting. Have podcasts. Yes, exactly. We've got <laughs> podcasts talking about all of these things too. So, you know, it's about awareness and increasing communication and, you know, encouraging people to talk about these issues a bit more, to normalise it and, you know, giving people a voice, which is what your work also does, making sure that people can actually say, these are the problems that we need to highlight. These are the problems we need to investigate. And, you know, a lot of people are here because they're passionate about what they want to do and they want the longevity of their careers and they want to make sure that happens. So... Yeah, it's all the stuff that we can work on to keep that happening. (laughs) Absolutely. With all of the work that you've done in these areas of caste and gender, bias and discrimination in tech, what is the most striking observation or reflection for you when you were looking at all of this? 
I don't know if I can put it down to one really <laughs> like <laughs> there were so many so the the uh, I I grew up in uh, Bangalore which used to be the tech hub of India it still is considered to be like the startup hub it's still considered to be I mean if you are a techie in India you want to probably be in Bangalore so I grew up in Bangalore when Bangalore was becoming a tech hub you know in the 90s early 2000s when it was just becoming this this kind of a so it, it used to back then be called the silicon valley of of india uh and we have all the the big tech guys still you know are headquartered in in the city so for me i grew up with the idea that tech is going to be an equalizer and then i grew up into like in my adult years i was exposed to social media again it was meant to be an equalizer so for me to just look around and see every household have an engineer who's working in a software firm but then doesn't necessarily practice you know equality or, or, i mean it's a it's a tall ask but basically you know to to be unaware of discrimination in their personal lives was a huge mismatch like i did not understand how that was happening so i think these stories are basically for me to explore how blinded we are when it comes to discrimination thanks to all our privileges and you know uh in that sense you know this tech not being an equalizer um uh, though i knew it there's a difference between knowing it and then actually realizing and living through it so there was like there was knowledge of it but then to actually see um how tech is not necessarily an equalizer for it was a huge um you know understanding and learning it it was a it, that was the journey of all of the last 18 months of doing these two or three longer longer form stories. Yeah, I I guess it's that idea where, you know, tech is the future, tech is going to make everything better, tech is going to make society better for humanity. And in general that's true, but you're still singing, you know, like seeing all these things that come up it's like not so true. This yeah. is not not entirely expected, not entirely unexpected and then digging deeper. Yeah. Yeah. That that was that would have been quite <laughs> enlightening. Yeah because like i said you, you, we know a lot of things yeah. and that that level of knowledge is great like yeah it's there it exists but then to go down deeper and see how and then realize uh you know that journey between knowledge and realization is a fascinating journey uh, very tough but it is it's uh, it's tough and it it's um, it's painful because you you know realization is when you know it's hit it's hit you knowledge doesn't necessarily always hit you it's like yeah sure i know about it i yeah. don't work in tech and <laughs> yeah you know you can just shrug and say that's fine but realization is when it actually hits you and so that journey is what is really it's it's painful but it's also rewarding yes absolutely it and it's being able to share that realization with everyone else that is equally rewarding and hope that you know you start to make people think about these things in different ways as well Yeah, yeah, that's true. That is true. I I I mean I hope so. I mean, the people who've responded to the stories really positively. So, a lot of people 
uh, especially after the caste story because like I said it was relatively unexplored territory the people I've quoted in the story are pretty much the only ones unless there's somebody hiding somewhere <laughs> who hasn't surfaced yet who've, who've worked on it so for 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 that story there was a barrage of emails twitter dms uh, you know everywhere like my instagram dms like everywhere they could find me they would you know there would be testimony tes- testimonies of this happened to me and this is who this is how i was wow. affected by it and this person in your story uh, is 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 an example of my story and so all of that happened similarly for the for the gender story like it just exploded so after the cast story actually we ended up doing a twitter spaces where people could come and oh, just speak oh that's wonderful yeah yeah it it was i think it was cathartic for so many people it is and and it's because you feel seen when when you're one yeah. of those people who are subject to all of these oppressions or all of these prejudices knowing that you're not the only one in that space experiencing yeah. that exact thing is a relief and yeah yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah. True. I, lo- I love that you held the spaces for them like that literally held the spaces for them that's amazing yeah yeah that was a it was a powerful experience like all of us on on it were so there was three be three well formal speakers who didn't take up a lot of time because they threw it open uh to to the listeners very soon but all of us were we were just like marveling at how powerful that hour and a half of conversation you know ended up being that's amazing i love that and i think we we need to have more spaces like that well thank you so much Raksha, for speaking with me today like this has been absolutely incredible like I've had such an amazing conversation with you just sharing all of your revelations (laughs) thank you so much it's 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 really nice to go back to these stories to think about how unfortunately for you and me they're going to be relevant for a longer period of time Uh, and so it's it's nice to be able to speak to someone like you to realize that all the work isn't in vain it's you know it's not like I'm writing a story putting it out there and then just you know thinking to myself why I did that because it's not changed anything (laughs) in anyone's lives but then spaces like this um isn't you know it just it just shows that there are people who are listening so it's it's good in that sense to not feel completely irrelevant and useless (laughs) no not useless at all I mean your work makes an impact and that's that's important. And even if it doesn't make direct change, it's still encouraging conversation and discourse. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much. Yes, thank Thanks you. Thanks for the space. Yeah. And thank you for sharing. So if people want to know more about your writing and your work, where can they go? Um, so I do republish a lot of the work that I um, write. So that it's, it's like a sample... Uh, on my website, which is uh, rakshakumar.com. That's R-A-K-S-H-A-K-U-M-A-R.com. My Twitter DMs are open. It takes me like a few days to actually respond, but I do. And uh, so these are the two spaces where it's just easy to reach out to me. And, you know, if you, you, if for many people on Twitter, like who write to me with specific requests, like, 
a lot of the academics write to me saying you know we we're looking for sources we are looking to kind of get perspective uh, on issues uh, i do share my email id there so uh, twitter is at raksha underscore kumar that's at rakshe underscore kumar excellent thank you so much i will share those in the show notes thank you so much yeah thank you again and yeah it's been absolutely amazing and i hope you enjoy the rest of your day you too thank you so much i really enjoyed the conversation thanks a lot me too if you enjoyed this conversation please let me know subscribe to the show leave us a rating and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends you can also support steam pilot on patreon under steam pilot show the link for which also be in the show notes thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time <laughs>